Welcome to Acre Interview. I'm Mike King, your host, and this is part one of our interview with Mike Ling. In this episode, Mike chats about his time flying the Tornado F3 and includes some brilliant stories about DACT in India, and of course, his time on the Royal Air Force aerobatic display team, the Red Arrows. If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like to support the channel, you can do this by donating monthly at patreon.com forward slash interview, where we have four different tiers for you to choose from. This greatly helps us to continue putting out regular quality content. Thank you and enjoy. So Mike, when did you first become interested in aviation? I grew up in Biggin Hill, so I have been exposed to aviation since a very early age. There was an air show at Biggin Hill every year, of course, with its heritage as a Battle of Britain fighter station, sector station in fact, it was, it was very prominent in the Battle of Britain. And uh, I grew up there, every year I went to the air show, aviation just became part of my life and I, I watched it every year, followed it and always wanted to be a pilot. So your path was set basically from that point? <laughs> yeah, well I, I watched the Red Arrows display in May of 1982 and wow. uh, that was when I was three years old, and, and I think uh, that was probably the time in which I first thought, right, I want to be a, I want to be a Red Arrows pilot, is actually what I was thinking. Wow. Yeah, and, uh, and then just uh, tried my hardest to get where I could. So what year did you actually join the RAF? So I finished my A-levels in 1997, and I joined the Royal Air Force in 1998. So <laughs> it was May 1998 when I first went to RAF Cranwell to, to start initial officer training. So <laughs> um, yeah, fair, fair time ago. Obviously, you mentioned you just wanted to be a Red Arrows pilot, but was there a frontline type you wanted to go into at this point? I, I wanted to be a fast jet pilot. Of course, that would then be the stepping stone to become Red Arrows pilot, but I also wanted to just fly fast jets. It was something that I'd always been following. I, I'll be honest, I wanted to be a Harrier pilot. Oh. Um, I, I probably should admit that on here, but I did want to be a Harrier pilot. I actually held, when I finished officer training, I held with 20 Squadron at RF Wittering, where I was the, the holding officer for a number of months, just um, the dog's body, basically. And uh, I got a number of Harrier trips, so I was very lucky to have flown in the back seat of a Harrier a few times. Mm -hmm. And then, unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be for my training, so I, I didn't get to fly the Harrier on the front line. But um, actually, knowing what I know, that the F3 would have been a, a, a good choice from the start anyway. Mm -hmm. So what were your first thoughts of the F3? Well, the Tornado F3 was, um, it was a bit of a, uh, the butt of everyone's jokes in the fast jet world at the time because um, it, it, it was labelled a fighter, but by no stretch was it a fighter. It was designed as an interceptor, of course, as a part of the Tornado programme. What it was designed to do was to go very fast and very fast at low level with a, a, a good weapon system. And, and by the time of its retirement, it was exactly that. It was a very fast interceptor with a brilliant weapon suite with data link and um, actually a very formidable platform. So yes, it was the butt of everyone's jokes back in the in the 90s, but actually it became a, a really potent platform and, and I, I thoroughly loved the, the, the atmosphere on the squadrons. They were true fighter squadrons mm -hmm. and, and that was the mentality and mm -hmm. it, it was brilliant, it really was brilliant. So what squadron did you get assigned to on the F3? On the F3, I flew with Treble One Squadron. Um, so that was, um, again, a, a squadron with lots of, of pedigree, lots of heritage. It was the first squadron to receive the Hurricane um, just before the Battle of Britain. So it was a real, a real fine squadron. And a lot of um, friendly rivalry with the sister squadron at uh, RF Lucas, which was 43 Squadron. Mm -hmm. So we did have a lot of great fun with a, bit, a good bit of uh, fighter squadron banter. Mm -hmm. um, it was Treble One Squadron, and it was based at RF Lucas, the prime role being, of course, air defence of the UK, where we, we sat on quick reaction alert for 
well, 24-7, 365. Mm -hmm. yeah. So did you ever conduct DACT in the Tornado 3 and what kind of types did you go up against? I had uh, some brilliant times. So DACT is dissimilar air combat training and that was um, where you would go up against something that wasn't a Tornado F3 to go and see how you could fare against something that might be a little bit better performing. I was lucky enough to have a go at DACT against um, Typhoon, Harrier, Jaguar, F-16, uh, Mirage 2000, uh, MiG-27. MiG-27? Yeah, um, I did an exercise in India. Check. Oh, India, yeah. right. Yeah, so we, um, we did a, an exercise in India where actually my first flight in India was being on the wing in close formation of a, a MiG-27. We'd taken off from a base called Gwalior, which is just south of Agra, where the Taj Mahal is. So we took off and in close formation went over the Taj Mahal at around 3,000 feet, which was brilliant. Now, what a great view. We then dropped off the MiG-27 and met up with the Mirage 2000. And the Mirage 2000 pilot was the, the boss of their, call it the fighter weapons school. So the wing commander was the, uh, the boss of the, the fighter weapons school. And we, we started a fight. And um, yeah, he, he started off, I was offensive, he was, he was defensive, so he's in front of me. And within 20, 30 seconds, he was behind me gunning me. Oh. And that guy, the guy that flew that airplane and that airplane put together, what an incredible, incredible um, pilot he was. And, um, and I was in a Tornado F3, and <laughs> clearly not as good a pilot as he was. Um, so yeah, he, ha he handed me um, my backside on that, that occasion. It was, it was fantastic though, what an experience to be doing that with a very, very capable and experienced Indian pilot. But yeah, bit of, bit of um, MiG-27, uh, trying to think what else I did. Hawk, obviously lots of Hawk, where we did it um, against 100 squadron training. Mm -hmm. um, so some really good opportunities to do some DACT. Was there any pictures from that uh, MiG-27, you know, over the Taj Mahal? <laughs> this is the most painful thing, but I had a digital camera and I had all of my photos from that period on a hard drive, which oh. then corrupted and I didn't back them up. So I had, I had a fair few photos that I could, I would love to have now to share on social media. They would be brilliant. But unfortunately, uh, they, all got, they all got lost when this hard drive went. So Size low, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> dreadful time. So uh, make sure you back up your photos on your hard drives. There you go, kids. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did you spend on the Tornado F3 and did, overall did you enjoy it? Um, I joined the Tornado F3 in January 2005. I came from Canada having flown the Hawk and was posted to the Tornado there. I started the ground school in January 2005, which was at RF Coningsby at the time. So ground school was done at Coningsby and then we moved to Lucas for the operational conversion unit with 56 Squadron. So that was in January 2005. I joined Treble One Squadron probably in the July of that year, maybe the August of that year. Um, and then actually I, I left the tornado in August 2007 so I would say actually flying the aeroplane was a little over two years and mm -hmm. on the front line so combat ready was um, just under two years really so not not a huge amount of time I got around 500 hours probably just short of 500 mm -hmm. hours flying the tornado so not a lot of time but actually a reasonable amount of flying mm -hmm. in that in that period and um, I did manage to do some some pretty great things and um, of course defending the nation is sort of is always at the front of your brain and the opportunity to do that was was fantastic. Yeah. So let's talk about the Red Arrows. How did you even start to apply for the Red Arrows? Is it a simple, any pilot can do, or what's the criteria you need? Well, there are four main criteria to be eligible to apply to join. So you have to be uh, a flight lieutenant or below, so a flying officer or a flight lieutenant, so a junior officer. You have to have completed at least 1,500 hours of fast jet flying, fast jet flying. so whether that be on a Tornado, a Jaguar, a Harrier, a Hawk. Uh, you have to have completed a frontline operational tour again flying one of those frontline types and the idea of that is that you can't get 1500 hours as an instructor on a hawk and then apply to join you have to have done a frontline tour so you have okay. to have flown on the front line um, and then 
be assessed as above average. So everyone every year gets an assessment on their appraisal and then an above average assessment is what mm -hmm. you need to then be eligible to apply for the red arrow. So they're the four main things you need to tick off. Of course, the problem is by getting 1500 hours, being above average and frontline tour under your belt, you're actually on the cusp of promotion because they're the credentials that people want to see and people getting further forward as senior officers. So mm -hmm. it's a really small window of opportunity really in someone's career where mm -hmm. they've got the criteria and are still a junior officer to be eligible to apply. Mm -hmm. So it, it's quite a small window of opportunity really. Mm -hmm. um, so many of us probably seen on you know their shows or documentaries, but you you get is it a week you go over to Akrotiri and you spend time with the team. Can you talk us through this? Yeah, sure. So the, the first part of the process is it's purely voluntary. I have to point that out. So you you apply to join. It's something you have to want to do. Um, you put the paperwork in. You then send your flying record off, and that flying record is from day one of flying training on an EFT platform, so Tutor, Bulldog, Firefly, whatever it might have been, from day one of flying training all the way up to current frontline report and then and then they send their flying record off red one will sit down and read it every, cover to cover every single applicant now bearing in mind there are between 30 and 35 applicants every year that's a lot of reports to read yeah. and red one sits and reads cover to cover everyone's flying reports and looks at all their strengths and weaknesses and how they might fit or not into the makeup of the red arrow so mm -hmm. he will then write down key points about each individual then all of the team pilots will get together and red one will see each of the applicants attributes to each of the pilots and then from those 30 35 anywhere between seven and nine will get down selected known as the shortlist so they're shortlisted and then those shortlistees are then taken to the mediterranean training camp mm -hmm. historically it was done at RAF criteria in cyprus but of late of course it's very busy out there with mm -hmm. the operations over the middle east mm -hmm. so um recently and th since 2015 the team have been going just to greece so working with the hellenic air force mm -hmm. on a training camp in greece and that's where the focus is all about flying. It's all about getting the display up to public display standards. So that's what's safe, presentable, and a senior officer will deem that. So um, that's what the, the exercise is about. But while you're there, you've got a week where you can bring potential candidates out. So that's mm -hmm. where the shortlist will go for their interviews, flying tests, and peer assessments. Now, of course, um, yes, of course, you've got to have the hands and feet to actually fly the aeroplanes in close formation doing aerobatics. So that's one of the aspects is a flying test where they'll fly in the back seat of the the Red Arrow's team executive officer, so one of the senior pilots, on the wing of Red One doing loops and barrel rolls in a Hawk, which mm. they might not have flown the aeroplane for a long time, if, if ever, <laughs> um, but they've certainly never done loops and rolls at low level in a, in a Hawk. So it's a completely new skill. But what that means is that you can assess somebody's learning curve. You can see how quickly they can learn where they went wrong, what their hands and feet didn't quite do right. So in the second attempt they get at that manoeuvre, they can do better. Mm -hmm. So that flying test, it only lasts 20, 25 minutes, but it's a real crucial step as to assessing somebody's suitability in mm -hmm. terms of performance, hands and feet, mm -hmm. attitude, and, and whether they're gonna be able to be mm -hmm. good in the cockpit in terms mm -hmm. of learning. So that's a very important point. The next important point is the interview where three senior officers sit the candidate down and um, <laughs> ask them lots of grilling questions. Um, and that's actually bearing in mind that these guys and girls haven't probably done an interview since before they joined the Royal Air Force. Actually, it's quite a big deal, and I, yeah. I found it quite a big deal. I'm nervous about interviews in the first place when it comes to a job interview. So um, having not done it for sometimes 15 years, it's quite a big deal, really. That's another important point. But actually, arguably, the most important point is just getting to know someone. If you've mm -hmm. got a week with somebody where you, you're flying them in your back seat three times a day, you're socialising in the evenings, at the weekends you can let your hair down and see how they are on that aspect, um, then that's a very important point. Obviously, the Red Arrow is a very small team where you've only got nine display pilots um, who work together constantly in the summer. 
plus red tent, I can't forget red tent of course. Um, <laughs> so, but sometimes spending 16 hours a day together, you just frankly got to get on. Otherwise doing that day in, day out for the whole of the summer, you've just got to be able to get on, mm -hmm. otherwise the team won't work. Mm -hmm. And of course there is a trust element as well, where you're flying quite close to each mm -hmm. other, you're flying um, quite fast, it, you need to make sure that you're going to be able to understand what the guy next to you is doing. So the, the peer assessment is very important when it comes to the selection process mm -hmm. for the team. And can Red One or the rest of the team see early on if someone's not going to be the right fit personality-wise? Or is that the, quite difficult? It's, um, I think you need to see the overall picture from the week. Um, there might be something that happens in the flying test. So if mm -hmm. somebody doesn't pass the flying test and then you can assess straight away, well, I'm really sorry, yeah. you, you, you haven't passed your flying test, you're going to be unsuitable for this role. So um, th there are certain aspects of that selection week which you can determine quite easily, mm -hmm. I think, whether or not somebody is going to be suitable for the role. Mm -hmm. um, the peer assessment thing is a bit harder because, of course, everyone is, is different. It's quite subjective. I, I imagine most fighter pilots or fast jet pilots in the Royal Air Force are relatively like-minded, but that doesn't go across the board. There yeah, are some people that are different. And, and if you, from somebody's report, you can see that they, they would probably fit. But actually, when it comes to it, they might they, they just act in a way that you might not expect them to act, yeah. then it might mean that they're not suitable. And you might get that from day one mm -hmm. of the shortlist. It's, but the key thing that we tell all candidates for the shortlist is you just got to be yourself. There's no point in trying to pretend to be somebody else because invariably you'll be pretending to be somebody else that people don't like. So if you just be yourself. You can't do that for three years. <laughs> no, well, exactly, yeah. So as soon as you then join the team, you're not going to be that person again. Mm -hmm. So it, it does make a big deal. That we try and make a big deal of mm -hmm. being yourself, but of course yeah. that's very easy to say. Exactly, When yeah. you're under a lot of pressure for an entire week um, with people that you want to join. Of course. And can you remember when you got the call or the email that you were in? Where were you and how do you feel? Yeah, that's a good question. So it was a bit of, um, back in the late, early 2000s. So when I, when I applied, it, the, the Air Force had already started shrinking in terms of squadron numbers and um, it's actually there were three on my shortlist there were nine of us on the shortlist three of us were from Trevor One Squadron so we're all oh, three oh. pilots from Trevor One Squadron and um, obviously very good friends of mine colleagues and the three of us had gone out to the shortlist we'd come back and we were waiting to find out it just so happened that the officer commanding of Trevor One Squadron at the time was an ex-Red Arrow a guy mm. called Kelvin Truss who you know, he'd, he'd talked to, talk to us about the Red Arrows and he obviously knew that I'd been keen on it for a while so um he suggested I went for it that year. I was actually going to wait till the following year because I wanted more time on the tornado. I was actually kind of applying in 2007 to get my name known as such. Yeah. And then it's probably a little, probably about a year too early for me to apply. Um, but anyway, so Kelvin had, um, had put us forward. We'd been on the shortlist, we'd come back. There were only three places that year. So there were going to be six unlucky people and three very happy people. Um, he was actually away for the weekend. So it was a Friday afternoon. He was actually away for the weekend, so what he did is he told the squadron executive officer to put uh, one of us in an office. So we, I went in his office, one went in OCA's office, and one went in OCB flight's office. And we sat there and we had to wait for the phone to ring, and it was going to be Kelvin phoning us from overseas to break the news to us individually. And we weren't allowed to come out of the room until the executive officer knew that all three of us had been told on the phone. So, so I sat there, and I don't know which order I was, I was in. Um, but anyway, so I got the good news, and of course the other chaps got the bad news, and then we all came out of these offices together, and that was, obviously I was elated, but mm. at that point you've got to try and yeah. hide that elation, because of course there's commiserations that you've got to, to present to the others. So, um, a difficult time, um, trying to hide my joy from those guys, but of course I'm absolutely delighted underneath, and it was, as I say, it was a Friday night, so, uh, oh, it was a Friday afternoon, and I think we had a, about an hour to wait till the bar opened at Lucas, <laughs> now Friday happy hours at Lucas at the time were, we're pretty special anyway, but this was even more so. 
the problem being is that the next day I was going to an exercise mm. for a month. Um, <laughs> So I had to get up at four o'clock to get on a coach to Bryce Norton to fly out to Denmark for an exercise. So, yes, the evening was great. The, the following morning was, um, yeah, pretty horrendous. Yeah. So when did your training begin, and what was the process involved of you know starting up to actually being uh, doing a full display? So training for the Red Arrows, it's, it depends where, where you're coming from. If you're already a Hawk pilot, of course that makes it easy because you don't have to refresh, learn to fly the Hawk again. So. For me, I was flying the Tornado, so I had to go to RF Valley at the time where they were flying T1s for a quick refresher. That was only a, a couple of weeks. So we flew, um, flew the, Torn uh, the, the Hawk for a couple of weeks there. And then straight to Scampton, where we did a bit of extra training with the Central Flying School, just learning some of the Red Arrows intricacies of flying the Hawk. So there were certain things that the Red Arrows did which normal Hawk pilots wouldn't do. I think normal Hawk pilots, that's not a good <laughs> yeah. way of terming it, but, but um, you know, other, Hawk, student, other yeah. Hawk operators, certainly students yeah. wouldn't try, so low level force landings, those sort of things. Um, you know, running down the runway 100 feet for a, a run and a break as opposed to the normal 500 or 1,000 feet. You know, mm -hmm. There were things that the team were doing that were different. So we had to learn those. So we did all that in, uh, at Scampton, but it was a bit different when I joined the team because the team were about to go on a tour of the Middle East and Far East. So we did a little bit of training at Scampton on the wing of the then executive officer. So just flying as four aircraft formations, looping and rolling, just getting the basic skills of looping and rolling in formation. And then uh, that then went on a pause for around five or six weeks because we, uh, we then flew out to Dubai, Oman, all the way to Malaysia where the team were performing at the Langkawi Air Show. So um, I essentially was bolted onto the public relations team. So I went ahead of every event and met all the, the media to, to arrange all of the press for that tour, which was um, a very interesting experience. So something that, of course, for the following years, I was going to be heavily involved with. So it was a really good thing to mm -hmm. do it as the first thing on the team. And then the team would arrive, I would fly in the back seat of the displays and then go to the next place. So it was a really, a really good mm -hmm. way of joining the team. Mm -hmm. We did a bit of training while we were there in the Middle East, but um, not a huge amount, only four or five trips. So mm -hmm. um, the real training started in January when we got back. We got back just before Christmas. January hit the ground running and started training where, again, we were then four ships with the boss leading this time rather than the executive officer and myself and my uh, my new new boys, FNGs as they're known, um, were getting used to building the display up and it got built from there and then we did the uh, the first event we actually did was on the 1st of April 2008 where um, it was the 90th anniversary of the Royal Air Force, mm -hmm. where we were given special permission before public display authority to fly over London in formation with four typhoons. So we went over over London then, and it, so that was my first outing in a in Not a red bad jet. one, is it? Yeah, it was fantastic, <laughs> yeah, brilliant. So what number were you assigned to at this point? I was selected as Red 3 for 2008 mm -hmm. and um, spent a brilliant time. The, the, the new guys in the team tend to be put in the, the two and three positions, certainly, and then either four or five, depending mm -hmm. on, on uh, what the makeup of the team is that year. So the idea of that, of course, you're, you're right next to the leader. The, the platform is meant to be very stable. Mm -hmm. um, so you get a really good view of the leader where your references are very clear and then you can, you can learn the ropes. And then the better you get at it, the harder it gets further back in the formation. So in your subsequent years mm -hmm. in the team, you, you position further back. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was red three and um, yeah, well of time. It was, um, it was a great thing to, to be. Um, ask any pilot who's been in the Red Arrows or, or of course the Blades and it's much harder on the left. So red three being on the left-hand side, it was much harder. So um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You don't really think that as a, like a spectator, <laughs> but obviously no, the pilots There's uh, always yeah. a lot of banter between left and right-hand right, guys. Yeah. So you tend to, in the Reds, if you, if you start on the left, you tend to stay on the left 
say red three, red five, red nine would be a, a sort of normal progression. Likewise, red two, red four, red eight, unless you go into the synchro pair and then it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so left and right hand side is a mm -hmm. fairly healthy banter. <laughs> so talk us through the voice commands and how did uh, you get used to it and did it take a while to get used to this? Well, the way I describe it normally is that um, every military pilot will learn to fly formation. Now, of course, the idea of that is it makes everything quite efficient in that um, if you want large numbers of aircraft to go off from an airfield to deliver weapons or carry freight or carry aid or whatever it might be, it's a lot easier for one person to speak to air traffic and coordinate it all and then for the other aircraft just to fly in formation with it. And it makes it a lot more efficient, a lot more easy. And sometimes there are tactical benefits as well. So that's why every pilot Royal Navy, Army, Royal Air Force will learn how to fly formation. That's the idea of it. So in your elementary aircraft, you'll learn how to fly the basics of close formation. And all that is, is just by lining up different parts of the lead aeroplane. And when those references change, you move your aeroplane to put the references back again. So if he goes into a turn, of course, the references change, you put your aeroplane so the references remain the same. And that works fine for small numbers of aircraft. Mm -hmm. As soon as you put four or five aeroplanes out on the wing of a big formation, that's, that's not gonna work anymore mm -hmm. because Yes, the leader's references change, then the guy next to him changes, and then the guy next to him, and it just ripples down the wing, yeah. if you like. So um, you can't do that in the Red Arrow. So what they do is they fly by ear. So that's known as flying by eye. Flying by ear is where Red 1 will make a call, and he might say, coming right now, on the nut of now, is when he puts his control input in. But the guy on the, on the far extremity of that formation can't afford to wait for that because it would be a big bow, they wouldn't be moving as one. So it might be that on the root of right, is when the outside guy would put his input in. So a lot of anticipation. And that takes a while to, to hone that skill because it's totally new. But then there's that, going back to the element of trust, there's a, there's, you've got to trust that the leader is actually going to put that input in <laughs> and that he's actually going to go in that direction. Because of course, if he says coming right now and you put your input in on the root of right, but he actually turns left on now, you know, you've gone the opposite way yeah. and that, that could be quite disastrous. Mm -hmm. So a lot of trust in that as well. So that's what the, the commands are. It's all done with exactly the same cadence. So. Um, Certainly with Jace, it was, it was a very almost slow, methodical, um, metronomic type cadence where Jace Hawker, this was Red One when I joined the team, and it, he had every single command was exactly the same. And that now carries on through all the other bosses I've had on the Reds and also here on the Blades. You know, it's exactly how we mm -hmm. do it because we might as well move as one flowing formation because we can use our ears as well as our eyes. Yeah. And we've learned that skill by being in the Red Arrows. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that's, that's what the flying by ear bit is all about. And yeah. It's, um, yeah, it takes a while. And there are some times when you're listening to another radio or you're listening to air traffic and, and you might miss that call and it, that becomes fairly obvious for people watching <laughs> yeah. on the ground. Yeah. yeah. So can you remember the, the PDA for the first time and getting that red suit? What was that feeling like? That was, uh, yeah, first PDA was, um, it's very special. You know, this is something that I've been working towards for pretty much my entire life, just wanting to, that moment of putting a red suit on for the first time. So it was very, very special. That was at RAF Akrotiri. Um, at the time we were filming a documentary, so um, there were cameras all over the place and uh, we had to almost put it on a couple of times just to, th that, that moment of trying to capture it on mm -hmm. the TV. And um, it was still incredibly special. And, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it, something I'll remember forever. Mm -hmm. And can you remember your first public display? Yeah, the, well, the first public display, if you'd watched that documentary, was <laughs> was actually in South End. But we had done one before on um, on Anglesey, a place called Beaumaris. Mm. So we've done a display at Beaumaris. But the big first public display was at the South End Air Show, <laughs> where on the certainly on the first day of that, my pretty much my entire family were going to be there watching. But again, it was all part of a documentary, so um, a little bit of um, added pressure because there are TV crews there, my whole family's there, and um, it was it, it was a great moment still. Mm -hmm. And um, it just adds that extra level of, of, 
won't say anxiety, but I don't mean anxiety, just butterflies in the stomach. Yeah, of course, yeah. And you were lucky enough to join the team when they went to North America to display over there. What was that like? That must have been amazing. That was, yeah, we went to the States for my first year. So in the June, start of June, we, did, we actually only did our first couple of displays um, in June. And then we got the jets ready and deployed out to the States for four weeks, I think it was, where flying from Lincolnshire up to North Scotland, Iceland, Greenland, Canada, down the East Coast. We went all the way down to the furthest we got was um, was Virginia, where we displayed at the, the F-22's base oh, yeah. at Langley. Yeah, so Langley, that was yeah. um, incredible. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. the whole, I've still got etched in my memory that the scenery over Greenland with the glaciers was incredible, it really mm -hmm. was. And then um, we had to change our route because of the weather. So we ended up going to a, a place in Greenland called Narsasuak, so very southern tip of Greenland, where back in the Second World War was the route that the that they used to take in delivering aircraft from the States. So um, yeah, a lot of history there, but it was it was this little runway, um, 6,000 feet long, so quite short for a hawk, um, downhill sloping. And at the end, of, it was in the middle of a, an iceberg, uh, a glass, glacial valley. At the end of this runway was a fjord full of icebergs. And um, I just still got these images of landing on this little runway, taxiing in. We stayed the night there, went out on a fishing boat and collected icebergs. To, it was just, um, yeah, an immense experience. But that was the actual just transit out to the States. And then in, in Quebec, where we were for a number of days, we worked with our Canadian counterparts, the Snowbirds, mm -hmm. and then both American teams. So the Blue Angels from the US Navy and the Thunderbirds from the US Air Force. And all four teams together, which hadn't been done for years, yeah, able to put on shows and what was even more special about that is that the snowbirds at the time I'd trained in Canada in 2004 a guy that was on my course on that on the Hawk in Canada was snowbird four in I'm 2008 in his first year when I was red three in my first year and so it was great to hook up with him I got to fly in his airplane for one of their displays and he flew in my back seat for one of our displays Very and cool. um, it was a sunset display with him in the boot and that's such a memorable display for me mm -hmm. that it was just so incredible that yeah, it, it makes the aviation world look even smaller when one of your mates is now you yeah. know, in a counterpart team in North America and you're getting to fly each other. So Definitely. really special moment. Yeah, and I know a lot of you are going to want to um, know this question, um, the answer to this, but was there any he healthy banter between the teams? It was interesting because um, the, the, the two US teams are the, the most incredibly professional teams when it comes to how they uh, look on the ground, how they, how they carry themselves, even socially when you go in the evenings there were certain things that certainly i think the red arrows would do as as brit pilots and, and actually the snowbirds were the canadian pilots were very similar in that regard they you know, they were a, a little bit more chilled out i suppose mm -hmm. is probably a way of saying it now i i do applaud the way that the american teams are they, they carry themselves very well everywhere they go and I've, I've been lucky in the last few years to have worked with them as well and they they do carry themselves very well um so there wasn't any banter as such it's mm -hmm. just um uh i think it was a really really friendly mm -hmm. I don't even call it friendly rivalry. It was, it was banter, but not to a, a derogatory degree. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did the uh, crowds in the states um, like see you guys? Did they love you, or because I heard, I think it was from JS, they thought the red, white, and blue was for them, but it was actually <laughs> representing our country. Yeah. So, of course, um, the beauty of the Red Irish Jets is that you've got the, the, the colours of the Union flag. They do, of course, uh, represent the colours of the stars and stripes as well. And there were a couple of people that gave comment about the fact that they were very grateful that we put the colours of their flag in our jets and. Um, <laughs> We didn't have the heart to tell them, even though they're standing looking at, you know, on our, on our flying suits, <laughs> yeah. we had a union flag and um, didn't have the heart to tell them that mm -hmm. we, we always do it. But um, no, they were very grateful. They were really appreciative crowds. Mm -hmm. I remember especially the, um, the Rhode Island air display we did, which was um, a huge, huge crowd and got on the ground after that and did some signing up and down the fence. And they were, they were 
in awe of what we were doing and, and it was really well received mm -hmm. and yeah I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity and obviously there's that famous photo of you flying over the Statue of Liberty that must have been yeah, pretty well we'd, we'd actually done a display in New York Harbour so just um, I think it's called South Beach so just southwest of Manhattan I believe I think about my geography now but um, it was near Manhattan because I could see it when we were displaying um, we did a full display there and they had to close one of the airports for us to, to be able to do that um, really incredible opportunity mm -hmm. but then at the end of it before we went to land at uh, a place called Farmingdale, we, we got permission to fly uh, past the Statue of Liberty, very close to the Statue of Liberty for a photo shoot and um, fly past Manhattan, which was, in, yeah, yeah, just looking out the window at all the skyscrapers and, and seeing the Statue of Liberty. Uh, yeah, again, what, another memory that, mm -hmm. is, that has been etched. Yeah. And then you came back, I, can't, I don't know which year it was, but you came back as a synchro pair. Could you tell us what this was like coming from like a number three slot? Well, what would normally happen with the selection of synchro is that uh, you would, if you're a selected synchro, you in your second year in the team, you would be red seven, so synchro number two. And then automatically in your following year, so your, normally your third year, you'd be synchro leader. And then you would get to choose who your synchro wingman is. So um, of course there's an extra level of trust involved with that. And of course you've got to train that person. So you need to understand how their training mentality is, how easy they're gonna to be to train, how easy they're gonna pick uh, their own errors and put right what they hadn't necessarily mm -hmm. done, done mm -hmm. right in the, the previous instance. So you got that extra self-selecting honour, if you, if you like to call it that. Um, for me, I was working with Ben Murphy, he was Red 7, so Synchro 2 in my first year when I was Red 3, and uh, he, for me, fortunately for me, picked me as his wingman in 2009. So going from Red 3 to Red 7 was, again, just the icing on the cake for me. Mm -hmm. I was always doing, already doing the best job in the world, but to, to have that extra level of um, flying discipline Mm -hmm. It was just second to none. It just, mm -hmm. There was no, no, uh, no. I can't explain how happy I mm -hmm. was when I was selected for that. Mm -hmm. Now that that announcement is slightly different because when you get announced, when you get selected for the team as a whole, it's normally the, the station commander of the current your current base that tells you or your or your officer commanding of your squadron. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you get selected within the team with which position you're going to fly it's normally done after the Jersey Air Show. So the team have displayed at the Jersey Air Show. There'll be a bit of a cocktail party. And, uh, and then that, the team announcement for the following year is done. So it's, the, it's normally the, the, the incoming pilot's first event with the team is this cocktail party. They announce who's going to be what, but the biggest deal of that night is who's going to be synchro the following year. Mm -hmm. For the three new pilots, it's quite a, well, certainly was for me, it was quite a big deal whether or not you're going to get this job. And um, I just remember being in an utter state of shock mm -hmm. that I'd been selected. Um, mm -hmm. But what that then means is that you then have three trips a day of very tiring flying, getting used to what Synchro do, which mm -hmm. is a slight level over and above in terms of um, uh, what you're doing with the aeroplane in terms mm -hmm. of uh, fatiguing flying. Mm -hmm. So it was just three, three trips a day of, of pulling the wings off the jet and, um, and just doing some incredible flying. So uh, the happiest man in the world I was. I can imagine. And this is probably gonna be hard to pinpoint because there's many, but uh, do you have one memorable story that sticks out in your mind more than others for that three years and that tour? That three years in that tour, oh, it's a t yeah, that is a very good question. The, the the tour of the US was, I've still got so many good memories from that. And um, uh, yeah, it was it was a brilliant opportunity. I know the team are going back there this year, so it, uh, they've got some really good things lined up for that. And, and they're gonna have a great time going across mm -hmm. across the Atlantic and, um, and seeing all those sites mm -hmm. that I saw 10, 11 years ago. Um, I think for me, we didn't get to display at Biggin Hill, my hometown, in my first year because we were in America. The air show was in June, we didn't get to display there. But the following year, so 2009, I want to say it was the 27th of June 2009, I'm pretty sure that was the date, um, <laughs> I, 
I, my, my schoolboy dream came true and I was displaying at Biggin Hill. But even better now, I was actually in the Synchro Pair displaying yeah. at Biggin Hill. So that was a really, really special moment. And mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine did send me a picture of me taxiing in from landing at Biggin, ready for the display and a big grin on my face. Which <laughs> I, I don't think I could have wiped off all weekend. Oh, I can imagine, I can imagine, fantastic. yeah. And unfortunately for me, for that, just the first day, we displayed Saturday and Sunday there. The first day, the Saturday was, uh, there was one manoeuvre where the, the wind direction meant that I had to call the next part of the move. So I had to call us to turn back towards the airfield. But I, I, whether I'd forgotten, whether I was just uh, a little bit distracted by seeing all of these, you know, there's my school down there yeah. and that's where I used to live. I didn't call this turn in. So Ben, the leader, said, well, are we turning in? Oh, I've forgotten. So <laughs> I, unfortunately that led to a bit of a gap in, oh. in the display. So a bit disappointing that it didn't run on rails for that first display. But safety but first, of course. All my own fault. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but the next day was great. And yeah. um, again, friends and family on the ground, which just gives you that extra level, level of pride of knowing course, that yeah. people are watching you.